Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you, like me, adore nature and love staring at it, then Leica are a company you totally need to check out. With over 100 years of knowledge in developing and manufacturing optical systems, Leica's products are perfectly designed to bring you closer to the wonders of nature. The binoculars I'm using this month are the Ultravid HD+. If you're looking for a proven design coupled with an optical elegance, you simply cannot overlook the Leica HD Plus model. A precise combination of the state-of-the-art technology, a new coating process and the greatest optical know-how. And now, on with the show. There's two parts of nature, the absolute beauty and wonder, and then there's a story. There's always a story to tell and ensuring that it's told is an important job. One person that knows that better than anyone else is award-winning documentary filmmaker Nina Constable. On this week's show, I speak with Nina about how she even gets started on working on projects, what some of the most challenging moments she has encountered so far are, and of course those classic Ryan questions of what some of Nina's favourite moments and projects have been. I advise you grab a cup of coffee or tea and sit back to enjoy a chat with someone that has travelled the world as they tell you about the importance of telling the story of nature. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello Nina, welcome to Into the Wild. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. First and most important question for 2021, how are you? I'm good, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) High pitch. What an absolutely amazing answer. (laughs) it's like you said one thing and your face was like I, I, I don't yeah, know yeah honestly know. yeah I think oh what it's just been such a weird start to the year hasn't it I think it was <sighs> very much I don't know why I thought this because I think it was quite apparent that we were it was most likely we were going to go back into another lockdown mm. but it did feel like Christmas and the new year and all the beautiful frost everywhere it was kind of like a clean slate and it was like let's start 2021 it's all going to be good and then it's just been madness, to be honest. It's just it's not just, happened you know, like you know, that. Like, oh no, actually 2021 has started off in such a crazy way. But no, I'm generally yeah. fine and really like to kind of look at all the positives. And <laughs> I do like it when people answer this question. I think I might stop asking it until things smoothen out because yeah. everyone says the same thing going, uh, I mean, I'm fine. Like... <laughs> I've got a roof, if that's anything to go I've by. I've got a fire. There's tins in it's the cupboard. It's all great. <laughs> yeah, for the listeners, Nina's got a lovely... You've got a log burner fire right next to you. Yes, I do. Um, though it is the biggest chimney and the smallest log burner you've ever seen. If you could see it, it looks ridiculous. <laughs> I don't really know what they were thinking. Is it like one of the old Victorian chimney places with the tiny modern wood fire um, in the middle? It's actually this beer moth of a Cornish granite fireplace that's over, I'd say, like a metre and a half, maybe two metres wide, floor to ceiling. And then I would say the wood burner is about a foot and a half high. (laughs) (laughs) No joke. I'll have to send you a picture later because it looks ridiculous. I love how we've started this con- uh, started the show with it. This has turned into Homes Under the Hammer or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Nature listeners are going, what, what is this so show? So I'm an is interior this, like, designer. And... <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to talk about minimalism. 
technicality. Um, <laughs> let's okay. First proper question. Let's bring this back on track. Let's actually tell the listeners. Um, can you tell us who you are and what is it you do? So I am Nina Constable and I am a self-shooting conservation filmmaker. Succinct. Amazing. Sorry, I took a sip of tea. <laughs> Sorry, that we was We both started succinct. this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, amazing. So how, how long have you been um, doing conservation filmmaking? So I would say about five years, but I'm not very good with time. But I would say that's how long I've kind of been practising myself and kind of being paid to do it. And it's kind of been my job. But there was definitely kind of a period of time where I was probably like in the industry but interning or kind of just doing little odd jobs um but yeah I would I would say about five years and was it was it you when you were doing that industry kind of the, I guess like the the ladder, ladder steps of the industry did you know that's what you were going to go into was the conservation filmmaking um I think no I didn't at the very beginning I wasn't a hundred percent sure exactly when I finished my master's, did a master's in documentary filmmaking, and mm. I, I, that was more kind of on the anthropogenic side of things and more about people. And the wildlife side of it, I think, came and the conservation side. I did an internship um, in Mozambique for six months with the Marine Megafauna oh, Foundation wow. and worked really closely with two scientists, Andrea Marshall, Dr. Andrea Marshall and Dr. Simon Pierce, and they were mm. researching manta rays turtles and whale sharks but working to protect them and conserve them as well and I think that was my first real exposure to it in a way I was kind of listening to them every single day and I think that was where I was just like oh my gosh this is a really really important thing to be trying to help if I can Mm -hmm. in any way and I think that was really what kind of kick-started it the kind of the conservation side of my work alongside the humanitarian side um and I think yeah that was when I just really realized that it was just something that was really important and I just yeah I wanted to do so nature and wildlife looking at that was that something because I guess the the next question is again something every guest gets asked but I guess for yourself maybe this is slightly different because everyone I usually ask people when their love for nature and wildlife began and the normal answer we get is oh ask my parents because it was always from a kid now probably similar to yourself to some extent but is it slightly different is it been a different journey for you getting into nature and wildlife yeah I would say I've always loved being outside and we grew up um mostly without a a tv and so my mum always encouraged us to get Mm. outside so I was definitely out and about and I was I loved animals and at one point I ended up with 24 rabbits and always wanted what? dog. Yeah. It was Well that was is that the classic rabbit accident it or It is the classic they really do breed like rabbits. I had one rabbit who was a rescue called Eric who was renamed Frosty. Oh, and I thought Frosty was a bit lonely so then we got Nibbles as a companion and they had babies the babies escaped through the chicken wire was a bit big for baby rabbits they all escaped went and mated with wild rabbits and then came back and basically and my mum didn't really want them in the first place it was just my obsession with them and I just remember every day I'd go to the shed and there'd be like a new litter of rabbits and I'd just be like oh my god I'm gonna have to tell my mum that we've got six more until we had 24 and she got to the point where she was like this is ridiculous 
and this might <laughs> at least she had a line she did she had a line where she's like this is insane where there are literally 24 is my max and yeah Nina. it's too many but then she basically this sounds like whenever i say this to people they're like mm-hmm, i don't think this is real they went to most of them i was allowed to keep two they went to rabbit haven which is a real place, <laughs> is a real place. I did actually go there, but it sounds that like animal heaven. But I feel oh, I definitely, okay. re- I remember being taken to a place where I was told that all these rabbits were going and there were these kind of like big hutches that were like hotels and it looked like a rabbit haven. So I tell myself that that is where they all went to the rabbit haven. <laughs> That is one of the most beautiful and hilarious things I've ever heard. But I digressed. But basically, basically I've always loved... <laughs> no, I'm I've, glad you did. I've always loved animals, but I don't think it was something that I... I, I don't think I was aware of it being a career option for me, if I'm totally honest. I mm. don't think when I was at yeah. school and when I was growing up and my family... So my grandma actually was always a really avid nature lover and had these amazing nature diaries and we she would take us on long walks and know what all the flowers and the trees and all the birds that she was seeing. She was amazing. But I grew up in quite a kind of literary academic household and I don't think that kind mm. of nature and conservation was something that was really talked about a huge amount. So I think it's definitely something that I have had a growing awareness of through my kind of friendship circles and kind of a growing interest as I've grown up and so I wouldn't say I was somebody that was born wanting to save the planet um if I'm totally honest but Mm. it's something that I've had a growing interest in and a growing awareness that it is something that now has a sense of urgency and actually if what I can do can help in some way then um I'm gonna try yeah and I I think it's lovely when I hear or when I speak to people as well that have gone down it a different route as well or it's it's come I say later in life that makes it sound very grand but it, that kind of getting back into nature a bit later rather than a child um it it shows that it can happen I think we're so used to saying well nature people have always been nature people you know from a kid like they're, oh, they're always outside and or always wanting to play with animals or go bug hunting but when when we hear it from a different side of things and a few people we've spoken to on the series we go no it was a little bit later for me it shows that see it can happen to anyone (laughs) if you just want to change and care you can do it definitely so wildlife well so documentary uh filmmaking so i guess a similar question to the last one we just asked is how and when did your love for documentary filmmaking start so probably started with watching however many years ago I think it's maybe like 19 years old now I think Life of Mammals was the kind of Mm. mind-blowing series that I watched that I just was like this is incredible and how did they do this and how did they film that Um, but again at that point I again didn't think it was a kind of viable career option for me but I think it was during my master's where so I did English first then had a year out and had become really obsessed with photography d- during my um, my first degree and then went on to do a master's in documentary filmmaking at Bristol. And it was during that year that I just became obsessed with filmmaking itself and just absolutely fell in love with, yeah, just going out and shooting. And I just thought it was totally magic that you could then just bring everything mm. into the edit suite. Um, But I think it was, again, back to Mozambique, I think that was where working alongside these amazing people and I got to go up in a micro light and I was filming just with this 7D Mark I, I think, and ended up 
um, having to weight it down. I think I, I zip tied diving weights to the bottom to add weight to it so I wasn't getting so much shake and then had a pillow so I was just to try and get aerials that were usable um but I think Andrea especially we had a really close working relationship and she really pushed me and I think believed in me as well and I think having that person there to kind of champion me and be like we could do this and we could do this made me realize what we could do with film and one of the films Mm. that I made for her she'd just been awarded as a Nat Geo Explorer and was going to get her award at Mm. the Nat Geo I think it was the 125th gala and screened one of the films that I made at that event and I think for me you know not just like something that I've made is going to be played at this thing and perhaps have an impact and I think it helped to generate funds for the charity and I think realising then the power of film to raise awareness but also to direct funds for these charities that are doing all this really Mm. incredibly important work I think that's where I just was like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and yeah Yeah. I think that's where it kind of became I would say it is a bit of an obsession and I get have to get told (laughs) to stop working and that weekends are time to take time (laughs) off and (laughs) it's a healthy obsession yeah that's what I say (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's of course why would we not say that um I get okay so I don't think I I assumed you might not like this question because it sounds like a very it sounds like I'm interviewing you for a job if I want <laughs> Nina but I, what what would you say your style of filmmaking is or rather what do you pride yourself in in your films and your projects So I would say I feel like when I say this I make my film sound really boring but I would say that my <laughs> my style of films they're not like high drama films, if that makes Mm. sense. They're not kind of BBC kind of silverback kind of hunt scenes and big dramatic reveals. I would say that they are often quite simple stories, but stories of people on the ground doing what they can to protect nature. And that I would say Mm. is the main focus. It's about humans interaction with nature, but then also, um, I would say that with style-wise, I don't really know how to describe I always get told that my films have a very distinct style and people know when there's a film that's been made by me. But I don't... <laughs> I think that's probably because I'm breaking all the rules and not doing things <laughs> how I should. That's good, though. That is a good thing. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and I think one of the big things as well, actually, when I've been on some shoots and I've seen people interviewing and they've gone in with an agenda and a story that they want to tell and they very much want to get that story and I think one of the things that I've learned through my craft and through interviewing people is to just let people speak I never stop and mm-hmm. stop someone even yeah. if they're giving the longest answer in history and I'm learning their entire life story and I know it won't go in the edit I never stop anybody talking mm. and although that gives me a lot of work in the edit often and I have the hours of interviews for a five minute film I think that is one thing that means that you do it ends up just being much more of a conversation and I feel like I try and tell their story, not my story, if that makes sense, and not the story mm-hmm. that yeah. I want to tell, but the actual, the truth of what it is that they want to get across. I Yeah, I, I think that's, when you said you were breaking all the rules, it's, I think is a funny way to look at it, but then also we need documentaries I think like that because otherwise Jesus they're always stressful and there's always so much going on and you do need that element of realness and wholesomeness in a documentary where you're like this is actually 
And chats are easier to listen to when they're chats. Mm. When it's not got someone else's set agenda being pushed by it, it's this is a natural flow of what's happening. And I feel like that's so much more pleasant to watch and listen to. Like some of the scenes in some of your films are so just beautiful that you can just watch and you feel like you're still getting the story. But it's just like a, you know, it might just be a scene or a, a moving bit of footage mm. of where the location is, but you still feel like that's part of the story rather than I, that's what i found especially when i watched um beavers without borders um just towards the end of last year there was a lot of lovely bit of landscape footage in that where you're just like this thank is just you. telling the story as well no so i think that's um good good answer oh, <laughs> good thank start. you very much <laughs> and that was a poor end to a question for me but um so you had two you two focuses you said you were Con- uh, conservation and what was the other one sorry you said you started with filmmaking humanitarian kind of humanitarian that was it um so was there I mean, I guess we focus a little bit on the conservation, how you got into that. What about um, the other one? How did you kind of work your way into that? So that was something that I think was probably in my mind before the conservation side of things. And I think it was always, Mm. my mum would always said, because I've always loved writing and I did English as as a degree. And my grandfather was a journalist and a writer. And my mum always had the thing that she thought I'd be a good war correspondent, but didn't want me to do oh. it because she thought it was frightening <laughs> but that was something I'd <laughs> she always... thought you would be, she thought be a good, good it, war but th- correspondent but that I shouldn't do it <laughs> but such a... <laughs> like, that's just such a lovely thing to say that's so specific I know I think she just I she always says that I have empathy for people and I think that's may... maybe where that kind oh, of came nice. from and that which is a really nice thing to say and I yeah think, that is a lovely lovely thing um but I think yes yeah, so the humanitarian side I think that was something that I had kind of had thought that I would love to kind of yeah make films that um might help people in some way mm. and then that when I was in Mozambique again this was um kind of I think it was a very Mozambique kind of established the two kind of strains of my work I met this amazing mm. lady called Samantha Robertson and she was director of an arts charity that worked with children in war zones or on the margins of society, kind of doing art workshops with them to, one, to kind of generate funds for them, but also just to give them a distraction and to allow them to be children in amongst Mm -hmm. their kind of world falling apart around them. And she'd just come back from working in the Congo, and I think that had been really intense, but she had all this footage of the work they'd been doing but didn't know how to edit it, so I ended up... Um, we became really good friends and I just for free kind of put some footage together for her and I think for her seeing that she was like oh my gosh I've got so much footage of course I should be making films with things so we then started a working relationship and I've traveled really extensively with her and we have done a couple of jobs together for the UN and oh wow yeah which and had some amazing experiences spent six weeks in Zatari refugee camp together and they were running art workshops and I was producing films on their work and then we also um worked together at the UN summit in Istanbul I think about two three years ago now and they again were working on this big collaborative art project which I had to do a 24-hour edit on to be screened at the opening ceremony of the summit so that was an all-night edit which was quite full-on um but I think that work is so so important but definitely Mm. takes a mental 
toll on you and I think Samantha that's what I was going to ask yeah yeah I think she has taken a little break now she's actually studying filmmaking herself um nice yeah which is amazing but I think she also has just been working flat out for I don't six or seven years as the sole director of this charity and I think she needed to to step back just to recover a little bit herself um but Mm. we definitely will work together again in the future I think when we both kind of can because I think that work is also really important um but that's where that kind of work stemmed from and then I've done some other bits in between work for a a charity that work in South Africa with children in the townships that can't afford to go to school um and they provide education Mm. and went out to South Africa to make films for them that was a couple of years ago now um and so yeah little bits of humanitarian work kind of in and amongst the conservation filmmaking and with, I mean, it's the same for conservation with the humanitarian. You must see some pretty, I don't know, heavy places that make, like you said, you, you know, from not only the physical work you have to put into these projects that it takes a toll on you mentally, but also just seeing some of the hard scenes that are out there to film and relay that back. How do you deal with moments like that? Like you said about spending, was it six weeks? in a refugee camp yeah like that must have been how do you deal with that I think you just have to I think with that there was this really amazing girl who I became good friends with called Rima and we stayed in contact and she Mm. was living there it was her every day and I think you just when you're there you kind of it's it is hard to witness and to see but actually a lot of the people there are just so positive and you're like if you're positive and you're living in this situation who am I to kind of bring my sadness to this and that kind of snaps you out of it a bit I guess but I definitely do Mm. think that afterwards there I think there's twice in my filmmaking career that I've had two kind of things that I think I have had to really like mentally recover from and as much as I say you know who am I to bring my sadness to this it does impact you and after and I've actually just about a month ago finished reading The Beekeeper of Aleppo um which is all about the Syrian war and that kind of I was just thinking back Mm. to that time and just being like god that was crazy that I was I was there but you know more so for those people and I think afterwards, you, it just takes a little while to process it. And I think just yeah. doing what you can to kind of keep connected. And then when I came back to the UK, I did actually do some work with, um, I can't remember the name of the charity now, but it was basically Cornwall for Refugees. And that because mm. we weren't allowing many refugees here, but there were a few families. And I ended up doing volunteering a bit of time to make some films for them and just trying to kind of keep connected and keep helping. But then in the same strand as well but when I was out in Kenya working for Save the Elephants and we saw a poached elephant and that was the most Mm. horrendous thing to see and you just I think it's seeing the people on the ground that are trying to make things better that gives you the hope I think that's it I think it's keeping hold of hope is what kind of keeps you going and stops you kind of falling apart I think now when you have a project I guess this might be a very broad question as well, but where do you where do you start? What's how do you decide? Here's my starting point. So often, I would say more often than not, I am commissioned by organisations to make a film for mm. a particular purpose, whether that's to raise awareness to a 
particular campaign or project they're working on or so off so I basically just have to find out from them what it is that they want from a film what is it they want the film to achieve who the audience is whether they want to try and raise funds or whether it's just about raising awareness whether it's promoting a certain thing but it's a lot of listening that's where it all begins is just listening and learning from the experts from the charities because they know their stuff so much better than I do um Mm. and then it's a lot of research as as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but usually what I do is so I spend like weeks and weeks talking to individuals trying to learn as much as I can until I feel like I'm at a point where I think I can put a narrative together and then I put together like a draft script but we'll Mm. always send that over and just say you know this is how I see this coming together but you know it so much better than I do so have a look if you think I've lost the plot rewrite it all um (laughs) but it's just a starting point but that's usually where I get started and then there's a bit of a back back and forth where they'll say you know actually this fish is really exciting and I wouldn't have heard of it and they'll want that to be talked about or they'll say this person actually is you know been doing backbreaking work and we want them to have a part in the film so can we add them in there but that's kind of where it all starts really and then once we've got a script in place that everyone's happy with I then have to work out all the visuals and how to tell that story visually. So it's very similar to a storyboard kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But I do that. I I don't know why, for me, I know people do storyboards and they paint them all mm. out, but I've always just done it in a written way. And I don't know whether, again, that's not the correct way to be doing it. But for me, one, I'm not very good at drawing. So I don't know if I would know exactly what that scene I was trying Problem to depict one. was. <laughs> I'd be like, what is this black blob? What was I intending to be in this scene? That's very good, Nina, but you have just drawn another rabbit. (laughs) We need 24. Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, I've always, I've never done visual storyboards, really. I've always written them. And so, Mm. yeah, um, but it is basically, it's just a kind of a written shooting script. And that's kind of always how I've um, worked. But But then I guess that's later on than if you kind of have to put together a kind of a bit of a brief I'll do that as a pdf document and I'll find images that mm. I think will go so that is a visual thing before oh, we get cool. to so the scripting yeah. side yeah with conservation like so there might be some people listening that um might be like well hang on how does wildlife filmmaking actually contribute to conservation um how would you answer if someone asked you that how would you answer that so I think it can play lots of different roles I think whether it is so when I, I made a film for Butterfly Conservation and they're a charity that are... Mm. A lot of these charities are volunteer-led or they have very limited funds and yeah. they rely on members to be able to to do their work and often having a film to promote them as a charity can really help boost their member numbers mm. and through that, that generates the funds that allows them to go out and actually conduct their conservation work. So that's a very kind of linear way of how it can help and and that film I did for called Butterfly Conservation massively boosted their member numbers, which was really amazing. Oh, amazing. Um, but then I think raising awareness is a really big one. A lot of people aren't aware of so many people out there that are either working with a species that we didn't know existed here in the UK or working on something that we haven't heard of. And I think just raising awareness helps to get a conversation going. And if people are talking about something, then that can often help conserve a species because if you don't know about something you're not going to love it and if you don't love it you're not going to want to help it but if you can raise awareness 
somebody falls in love with the species and they, they make it their thing to, you know, want to donate or protect or volunteer, you know, if it gets somebody outside at the weekends, I don't know, trying to protect a species, then that, even one person, mm. you know, that's a bit of an impact that that film has had. I guess these next couple of questions are going to be what I call, they're like, they're like classic Ryan questions. So I always <laughs> ask people their favourite or their biggest challenges or stuff like that. So focusing on wildlife and conservation filmmaking, for you, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced whilst working on a project? I think, to- totally honestly, I think getting over, I think myself, I think I've been the biggest challenge mm. and I think self-confidence. I think especially... Oh, cool. um, working on my own because it wasn't necessarily mm. something that I planned to do I I thought when I finished I was like I'll apply to you know production companies and see where I get and actually ended up getting small commissions myself but has meant that I haven't had a huge amount of experience on a big production team and so this part of mm. me that's been like am I doing things the right way am I you know is this the right <laughs> way of doing this or do I look professional enough and never to the point where I've not taken on a job or I've not gone gone to do work but have caused myself a lot of stress kind of stressing beforehand just being like am I going to look professional enough and you know especially shooting on DSLRs which you know shoot in amazing quality but you're filming with somebody who knows a bit about kit but they're a photographer and they're like you're filming on that that's what you're f-. and yeah. you know, I'm just like, yeah so, yeah, yeah but it will be good I promise <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> I hope but so it's just that kind of I think that self-confidence took a while for me to not um to not have that imposter syndrome really and mm. just to be like you've hired me to come and do this job and I remember when I first got a job with WWF UK and I was like me do they know that like I'm just going to be bringing my <laughs> 5D Mark Four with me and it is just an SLR and I'm not a crew I'm just one person and so I think that has taken me a while to kind of get over and just realise that if mm. I'm going to work hard and actually I know that I can produce a film at the end that will play and you can hear it then you know I that's a job well done but yeah I would say that is probably one of the biggest challenges that I have faced I like that because I actually relate to that I relate to that answer and not not making the show about me but I I relate to that with this show because really? it started from nothing and you're kind of you're out there podcasts are such a the same as filmmaking such a established thing they're such a you know people have written books about how to start them and then you're going I'm just gonna try I don't know if this microphone I've got is the right way or what I'm doing <laughs> How do I contact people? Is a DM on Twitter acceptable? Do I apologise first? Do I just be myself? Is there a conduct? You don't know. Yeah. And so as you know, it, it, you get more and more, and I totally agree with the confidence. You get more and more confident the more you go on. And I, I really relate to what you do, because sometimes I've done on location shots with just my Zoom recorder, and I'm just there going, I don't look like I'm here to do an interview. Yeah. Like I look like I'm lost and looking for the nearest toilets or something. Like yeah. I don't. <laughs> like, so yeah, I really relate to that answer. Um, and I think yeah, it's it's a lovely self-affirming thing to have to go through when you when you're working in the in the style that you are. Have you ever been in uh, like whilst in the field making a project? Have you ever been in anywhere that would be considered dangerous or in a dangerous moment? So this is a really interesting one. And again, this is kind of a bit of a Sorry for the long-winded answer to this, because I actually got asked this in a podcast a few weeks ago, and I think because I hadn't seen the questions beforehand, and I was a bit taken aback by the question, I was like, no, I don't think so. But then seeing yours written, 
And I mm. I don't know why I'd forgotten about this. I think it's a thing they say sometimes with like trauma, you just you push things to the back of your mind. But seeing yeah. that question written and thinking about it, and I actually, I think one of the most frightening situations I've ever been in, where I genuinely feared for my life, was when I was out in Kenya um, filming the Save the Elephants. And mm. there, was, there were elections happening while I was out there. And oh. it meant that it was all kind of socially unsettled and there was an issue at the time they were um having they're in the middle of a, a drought and so a lot of the the goat herders a lot of the common grazing areas had had been grazed bare basically but within the nature reserve mm. there was grass but they they're not allowed in because it's encroachment but because there were a lot of people wanting to be elected they were kind of trying to get the goat herders on side and so they basically gave them permission to encroach on the park but the rangers at the same time were obviously doing their job and their job was to not allow encroachment into the park and so one mm. evening when we were there there was actually a shootout about 100 metres from oh my, my wooden cabin and we were basically there with, I think there were five wooden cabins and then the main kitchen area eating area and then tents and I just remember, yeah, just being literally... And we all had to go into... So we were in wooden cabins and tents and everyone had to go into the concrete kitchen and just kind of duck down and not be kind of where the windows were. And I think I'd forgotten about that until I saw your question. And I just and I mm. just remember... And they basically saved the elephants, were amazing, and they, you know, they were ready to evacuate anybody that didn't feel safe and wanted to be there. But it was, yeah, just one of those moments where you just are hearing the gunshots and there were fatalities as well. And, yeah, it was oh, just Christ. really frightening. Just, yeah, it was just so close. And the next day you could see the the empty bullet cartridges kind of around the camp and it was so close. It was, yeah, really frightening. Yeah. And, yeah, just being in the hundred metres is not far either. No, it was, yeah, really, that was genuinely, you know, and I was there just like... I might die. I might actually like. I might get shot. But I, I wonder whether I might give you another option in case you can't use that. I think the other time that I've been really scared again was there. But I basically had this vehicle um, that was a Suzuki. I can't remember what it was. A little Suzuki that basically the doors had been taken off and the roof to be able to do like three sixty mm. filming, and it was nicknamed oh, yeah. the Lion's Lunchbox because you <laughs> it basically it was very I accessible. Mean... And, Call a spade a spade. <laughs> and I, one evening, we were with this quite thin, quite hungry-looking lion, and I was just trying to get getting <laughs> shots of this lion, and the photographer that was with me was like, I think we should leave. And I was like, why? She was like, I really think we should leave. And then this lion got up, and it was probably about 20 metres away, and started walking towards us, and we were like, oh, we should leave. Yeah, this is <laughs> definitely not safe, and it is getting towards the evening, and we're totally exposed. So, yeah, that was a moment where, you know, we were like my life or a really good shot my life let's go <laughs> the cameraman's just like we need to leave why i spilt the paprika and now we smell amazing we need to get out of here <laughs> i've seasoned us so we need to <laughs> we are delicious right now let's go <laughs> <laughs> what well, i know i mean 360 shots are good but oh, nina do them higher up higher go higher the low angles, especially with the elephants walking past, to be able to put your camera out, are just that's another reason why it was really good 
for okay. filming. No, that's a fair point. Not safety, <laughs> but <laughs> I'd be I'd be awful in these situations. I'm so British, where it's just like, oh, should, has anyone risk assessed this? Has <laughs> anyone? So I anyone think i to ask the line. I think I'm the opposite, where I need to be kept in check sometimes and need somebody to say to mm. me like is that safe because I've also done quite a lot of um filming on quite big fishing boats and at one point I was filming it's been two years ago now on this big trawler and it was to do with CFAS and improving sustainability on fishing vessels with gear modifications and things and I was trying to get this shot and it was really quite big seas and it was quite a big boat mm. and I basically was holding onto this ladder so that I wasn't being thrown around the boat. But basically the ladder came free and I skidded and this person had to reach and grab me and they luckily caught me by my life jacket and caught me as I nearly went, probably would have gone overboard, you know, and and they were just like, I think you're getting too close. You're like, yeah, no, sorry, yeah, I'll uh, Yeah, no, fair point, yeah, fair point. Yeah. um, So I think sometimes I do need to be reminded to be a bit, more cautious maybe maybe we should make films together (laughs) (laughs) safety nina there's a storm maybe come in (laughs) let's not wait for the near-death moment let's end it here (laughs) um okay this is uh, next question this is i'm interested for this one is there a project or like kind of i don't know project or animal or topic that you'd absolutely love to work on yes there, there's a project that I re- I've been thinking about for about two years now, and I really, oh, want, wow. really want to make. Um, yeah, it is. I don't want to say too much. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But it's yeah. basically. It sounds weird, but it's about cork and cork farming. The place. No, the the <laughs> the material. And the material. <laughs> I didn't know if you just loved Ireland. <laughs> Um, no, about cork, the material, and okay. cork farming in Portugal, um, mm. because it is, I don't know if you know about, have you heard of the whistling tree? No. Well, it's, oh, it's just incredible. I can't remember how old it is, but it's just, it's called the whistling tree because it, there's so many birds that kind of come and nest in it and use it and it's just noisy but they have harvested a million corks from it and it's just this incredibly sustainable material but also the cork plantations the cork orchards um are amazing for wildlife but also for people in the economy and it's just this kind of circular um i think it's the most sustainable form of agriculture in the world that's incredible from my reading and it's just yeah i just really love to make a a film about the kind of the people and the wildlife that's i really like that uh, because i I like that from (laughs) if you said that to someone like i'd love to work on cork people would go like "Uh, okay that's um has nina had a gin again that's that (laughs) is usually what people say when i say it they're like cork As in cork, I'm like, yeah. Like, even I went, what, the place? Must be the place, it can't be the material. That would be insane. <laughs> but then it's, but then when you explain that, it's like, that's brilliant because it, it sounds, I'm sorry when I say this, you know what I mean. It sounds not interesting, but it's so interesting. <laughs> it's one of my really non-dramatic films that I make. Nothing but it happens. Is. It is. <laughs> yeah, but informative, like information-wise, that is dramatic, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. I want to make a film about it, so... <laughs> okay, right, next bit. What is your favourite bit of kit to use and why? So I would say my favourite bit of kit, um, which is probably a bit of a weird one, is my monopod. Mm. Oh, because cool. it's just, with the work that I do, I'm spending a lot of time kind of usually running around quite a lot. And with a tripod, mm. it's just more clunky and heavy. And I just find a monopod really versatile. And I've got one that's kind of got a panning video head on it. So you can still kind of get quite nice movements. But... I find also if you're out for a really long time, you don't want to just do handheld because you just get so tired. And just having that, um, it's just my favourite piece of kit. And that was something for a long time I was like, oh, I should get, you know, a big shoulder rig and I should get all this gear and that will make me look more professional. And I actually went and bought (laughs) myself a shoulder rig. And it just didn't work for the way that I operate. And I ended up actually giving Mm. it away to somebody that... um, Really? ...did work experience with me. I was like, it's just wasted. And they yeah they were going to use it so I yeah so yeah I would say that's something that I I just love it and I've tried other things and it's just what really works for me but one of the things I was going to say was that when I for kind of aspiring filmmakers or people that are kind of starting out a piece of kit that has been invaluable to me is these little road mics that plug into your phone and Mm. That was something I could have recorded this on as well, isn't it? Another option. <laughs> thinking, <laughs> thinking about as we're talking about. Oh, I have to tell the listeners what that means. I have to tell. That would have been perfect. So talking to Nina. <laughs> Nina said, "I'm going to record my audio on my voice app on my phone," and then twice throughout our conversation, she's gone, "Oh, I've got a Zoom recorder for a and oh, I've got this plug-in thing." So there's two different. That's, that's that's quite funny. <laughs> oh dear! So yeah, that could have been a second option that would have given us very good quality audio. Um, but yeah, that <laughs> that was something that um, when I yeah I was told about them by someone called Dan, and it was just such a lifesaver. And just it's they mm. record broadcast quality sound. They're about forty pounds. You get them on Amazon, and yeah, they just plug into a phone and they're amazing. absolutely amazing and that was something that until a year or two ago when I kind of bought kind of heavier duty um kind of lav mics I yeah they really helped to make my film seem much more professional just to have that kind of better nice. quality audio so that's something that now I don't use them so much but they're still amazing and I've actually sent them out to quite a lot of people during lockdown to record mm. interviews themselves on their phones and things so it's a really amazing piece of kit amazing um next question land or ocean filming oh that's so hard i would say probably land just because you can just spend more time doing it i guess and actually this might this (laughs) i don't know if this is too a bit of an overshare but this summer (laughs) when we came out of lockdown i spent a long time out on boats trying to film bluefin tuna and when you have to be in your wetsuit all day it's really tricky going to the loo and it's just logistically <laughs> trickier so I think comfort wise <laughs> I think yeah. I prefer land but I love being out in the ocean and yeah you know this summer I got to swim with seals and dolphins and caught a glimpse of a bluefin underwater so that's pretty oh, amazing amazing I think it's worth like some of the things like swimming with whatever it is you're swimming with is incredible but yeah I think probably if I had to choose one or the other to do for the rest of my life it would be land I would say 
Um, the big question, and maybe you won't, I think you're going to be very diplomatic with how you answer this one. Favourite project you've worked on? Yeah, that's so hard. <laughs> because I love them all, I really do. Um, God, I don't know. That's so, can I just choose loads? <laughs> you, you can I say them my, all for different reasons. I think my first favourite ever was the one that I made for Cornwall Butterfly Conservation because I think they mm. were just, the, they are, not were, they are still in existence. Um, mm -hmm. just the most incredible people to work with and how much they trusted me but also ha the impact that that film had and I think that was just a real I think that gave me confidence it gave me a lot of confidence in myself as a filmmaker I think that was the first film mm -hmm. that I the audio was good and I'd done, done films before that I was you know I was happy with but maybe didn't have very good audio equipment and I think that was the first time that I produced a film that I kind of had you know like cringe at the audio there's no like horrible wind sound or anything and it's just yeah. something that came to it just came, like came together and they were so pleased with it as well um and it just I think it, it meant a lot to me as a filmmaker but I think it meant a lot to them as a charity but then with Cornwall Wildlife Trust I've just I've got an amazing working relationship with them and have produced lots of films and that's where my work with the Cornwall Beaver Project and kind of beavers in general kind of started and they also, I my first award I ever got was for films I did for Cornwall Wildlife Trust as well so amazing. I think just them in general working with them on anything but then the Journey to the Sea series um, that was an amazing thing to work on and that's now on the Sky Nature channel and I think that was also yeah. a bit of a like Okay, bit of a highlight this is a well. real job. Maybe I am a proper filmmaker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then Beavers Without Borders, working with Sophie, who's just great fun, and just the mm -hmm. other amazing people that are in the film and working with Beaver Trust. Again, just just with these organisations that trust you to tell the story, but their input, it was light touch, but it was so important and helped to make the films, that helped to make the mm. films better. Um, yeah. So yeah, I absolutely did not choose one project there. That was a lot of projects, but <laughs> <laughs> but for all very different reasons, and that's what all I meant when I said you were going to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, for people that are listening that might be keen to get into filmmaking or trying different elements themselves, is there any bits of advice or like one bit of advice that you go, oh, like if I if I could have known this before I started, was there anything you would say to them? Oh gosh, there's one thing that I would say. I would say that it's very easy to kind of get lost in the visuals and kind of capturing things, but the story is always the most important thing. Yeah. And so do really think about the story that you're trying to tell, because I think if you've got good enough quality audio and you tell a strong story, even if you don't get mm. the perfect shots, you can still make a really powerful film. So I think that would be the thing mm. I would say is to remember that filmmaking is storytelling at its heart and to not forget that because I think sometimes I get sent films and they're beautifully shot and but then I get to the end I'm like oh, but I'm not 100% sure exactly what the story is or what they were trying mm. to say with this and and I will say that I'll say you know like yeah maybe think about that but I yeah that would be my main piece of advice I think and my last question um which everyone gets asked is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? God, I, I, I think right now, um, remembering that 
nature doesn't have a voice and signing petitions mm. signing writing to your mp taking action because i think a lot of us like posts on social media or read an article and it affects us and we care but i think for some reason it takes that extra bit to go through with it and sign yeah. the petition and to write it and i think people don't understand how much power that has if you can get something you know mm. in front of government if you can get something you know like all the work that chris packham's doing with hs2 and trying to get as many signatures yeah. as possible i think making as much noise as you can for nature because it needs it right now that's what i would say that's cool i like that yeah because that's uh, do you know what, that we've not had that come up on the sh- series yet of something like that practical element you know it's advice of how to enjoy it and how to but that, that easy thing of sign stuff like, yeah. like you said nature's not got yeah. a voice nina thank you so much for joining me for today's show it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um and laughing we laughed a lot on that show i enjoyed that, <laughs> <laughs> that Still laughing. after a day spent <laughs> yeah day spent in the rain i needed a pick-me-up conversation like that it was nice um so it, it i've learned so much about you know wildlife filmmaking there and it's it's absolutely amazing to hear the things you've done um so thank you very much and i look forward to speaking to you soon oh thanks for having me and yeah it's been a pleasure thanks again for listening if you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work nina is working on you can do so on twitter at nina constable or on instagram at nina constable media don't forget you can now become a part of into the wild's patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash into the wild podcast you can support the show and gain early access to episodes and exclusive shows. You can also get in touch with me at IntoTheWildPod at gmail.com or on social media at IntoTheWildPod on Twitter and IntoTheWildPodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.